Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. That's an interesting uh, graphic that um, Dr. made a mistake. I'll never forget it. This is uh, one of the mistakes that can happen uh, uh, and happens far too frequently in hospitals. There's a doctor who had a code blue was called and uh, the, the doctor worked on the person, intubated the person and uh, did everything to resuscitate the patient. And uh, after he'd done all of that, he called the physician and uh, it turned out that this patient had requested not to be uh, resuscitated, not, not to be intubated, not to have anything done. They died, they wanted to go peacefully. And so this doctor doing the best that he could. Uh, and when you have an emergency like that, they don't always have the information about uh, the patient and their desires. And so, uh, this then is something that uh, happened to this doctor, but happens uh, more often than you could imagine because people don't always have their uh, DNR statuses at the time they present uh, in, uh, in a full code. So uh, the question is, how do you... Uh, how do you keep this from happening? Uh, and so this is one of the things that as a patient, uh, uh, you need to let your family members know. So in case anything happens to you, that uh, if you don't want to be resuscitated, that they know this. But this, this is among the uh, mistakes that uh, uh, we make. and. Uh, and as you know, uh, uh, there's been a lot of information that suggests that uh, uh, medical errors are among the uh, leading causes of death in the United States. So, uh, but this is just one of them, and probably something that uh, we need to make sure that our family members all are aware of our, our statuses so that if something happens to us, they don't uh, resuscitate uh, unnecessarily. And if you uh, have a DNR uh, that uh, needs to be uh, shared with the rest of the family so they don't come to resuscitate you or something. I, I, doctor, I know when I, go to, uh, when I go to doctors, they're always asking me, do I have one? And I have one, but probably is the best just to bring up to do not resuscitate to my doctor and let them make a copy. Good idea. Good idea. Okay. Good idea. Good idea. Any other thoughts or ideas on that? Good to see you, Kevin. Okay. 
Now this this doctor took it very seriously and recognized that it was a, a mistake that uh, made it should not be repeated. And so uh, it's good to hear any other additional thought you might have. And of course, this is uh, what you have to do to the family once you find out you've made egregious error. But the deed has already been done. Any other thoughts or ideas on this? Dr. Callender, um, I know you don't need that for general office visits, but for surgeries, especially major surgery, is that a requirement? Do they ever ask for that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Every hospital mission, they ask for that. Right, because I know we but, did it. You know, if you go to the emergency room, uh, they uh, may not have it because they right. uh, without anybody around. And so uh, they may not have information in the emergency room. But for every hospital admission and for every surgery, they, yes, they ask that question. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other okay. thing Dr. is the family meeting. Yes, family meetings. Well, if you have a family meeting, then it's clear that it would be, it's important that you share that with your family so they can let, let you know, because we always ask that at family meetings. Uh, I, I got a comment about the uh, medical errors, it seems that medical malpractice is handled much differently in the United States compared to other countries because our malpractice cases go to juries. And um, juries, most of the time, award a lot more than a judge. In other countries, they have caps. They have a, a lot more caps on malpractice cases, and cases are more likely to be determined by a judge instead of a jury. So... It's the um, higher malpractice premiums paid by United States doctors. I think that uh, that leads to the the lack of transparency. The less likely to to admit to admit to mistakes because uh, malpractice insurance can, in some cases, put a doctor out of business. Mm -hmm. I lost. I lost. <laughs> they can put a patient out of business too. Yeah. Well, um, I, there are some states that have uh, caps, just as you mentioned, and there are some states that uh, do what the other countries do, but there's still too many states that. Uh, uh, actually do exactly what you said. And that's one of the problems. You stated pretty clearly that that, that is a, a big problem in the United States and states where they don't have uh, caption put on it. But you said it exactly as it is. Is that Dr. Ivy? Yes. Did you have a comment? No, no. <clears throat> I think I had. Well, good to see you, though, and 
Um, Happy holidays. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome. Now this next article uh, may uh, seem as a joke, but it probably isn't because there are hundred-year-old doctors who still practice. They're not that many, uh, but uh, would you go to a hundred-year-old doctor's question? And this is uh, uh, actually uh, Art Kaplan, who was an ethicist, who raised this question because uh, uh, there are other professions, arts and uh, other professions, accountants and other professions where uh, after a certain age, and even pastors, some some churches, after a certain age, you have to retire. Uh, of course, that's not the case for physicians. And so uh, we talked about this problem, the fact that uh, uh, actually whenever you lose your skills, that's when you should stop practicing. Uh, and if you have your skills at 100 years old and you're... Uh, you meet the medical standards, then you could, should continue to practice. Now, the question is, as a patient, would you go to a 100-year-old doctor? What are your thoughts on the matter? I uh, guess I would if, if I had been going to that person for a while. I don't think I would start going to one. I, I don't know why, but I guess just... I probably wouldn't just pick a doctor for the first time and realize that he's 100. I probably would pick somebody else. But if I've been yeah. going to him for a while, I would continue. We'll continue. You continue. Yeah. yeah. Other thoughts on the matter? I agree with Betty. I would be the same way. Um, if I had been going to him and for a while, I would continue. But just straight off the bat, like I was looking um, on the internet for ENT and I wouldn't, you know, I looked at the young ones and everything, they had a picture and everything, but I don't know if I would look at one that was a hundred to work on me. I don't know why, I guess I was just built up that way in our society, I don't know. For me, it depends on what type of shape the hundred year doctor is. If he's in the same shape as Dr. Callender, that would be my preference because that's a doctor that could help me get to 100. <laughs> Interesting thought. Any other ideas? Thanks for the compliment. <laughs> yeah. Is there any major difference between um, a private practitioner and uh, a doctor who works in the hospital? Is there any major difference in their salary? Yeah, yeah, the, the uh, private practitioner usually has a higher salary. Uh, I'll, I'll, let, uh, I'll let Dr. Ivy also give me an idea about that, but uh, traditionally they think that the uh, uh, academic doctors are uh, lower salary than the private practitioners. Uh, Dr. Ivy, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think, um, number one, there are very few 100-year-old doctors who are licensed to practice at that <laughs> age in light of the fact that uh, there's continuing medical education required to renew your license and things like that that would be very uh, uncomfortable or inconvenient for an older 
doctor. But uh, on uh, on the other, in answer to your question, I think uh, it depends on the specialty. If you're a general practice uh, physician, your salary range, uh, it, it, well, normally the general practice physicians are not hospital-based, mm -hmm. are not uh, uh, un university-based as a rule, unless there's a residency program there. But uh, surgeons uh, automatically have to be affiliated with a hospital. So therefore they have a combined salary uh, be, depending on the contract with the hospital, how much uh, you're paid for your services in addition to what the patient is going to be charged by you. So uh, in that instance, um, uh, generally speaking, uh, as a private practitioner, you can set your own fees. And depending on what the um, insurance pays for that particular patient, the carrier, uh, determines how much you would be paid as opposed to working on a salary at the hospital. So your options are higher if you're in private practice and have a, uh, uh, or other than a general practitioner because uh, the rates for general practice are less than for a specialist uh, in terms of what the insurance companies will pay. Right. Does that answer your question? Okay, well, yeah, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Somehow. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thank the you. The point that he first made about there's so few hundred year old doctors, but um, to that license, point, license. Yeah, licensed doctors. Uh, to that point, I'd say that I wouldn't trust any doctor under sixty. They've got to be at least <laughs> over sixty before I know that they would start caring about me as a seventy three year old man. <laughs> Well, that keeps That's me in the game. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, now, this is a, not a surprise to us, I guess, but as a consequence of COVID and uh, opioid overdoses, uh, we've got a 5% rise in death rate, and uh, U.S. life expectancy has fallen lowest level since 1996. Um, and I think the uh, combination of COVID-19, which is still killing people, um, and the fentanyl crisis, life uh, expectancy is dropping in the United States, which is different from other countries in the world. And of course, we've had the highest death rate from COVID in the world anyway. Uh, but we also have the highest death rate from drug overdose as well. So these two factors are causing our life expectancy to drop while other countries' life expectancies are increasing. And this is a cause of great concern. Of course, we're paying more attention now to the uh, fentanyl explosion and uh, so much so that uh, you can actually uh, get uh, uh, the antidote for fentanyl uh, and overdoses in any pharmacy by just asking for it. Uh, mm. uh, because there's so many people who are dying from uh, opioid overdoses. I think one so additional thing should be added though, Clive. <clears throat> I think that's gunshot wounds in the US. 
higher than anywhere else in but, the world. So that adds to the right. Right, we're we're so much. Yeah, our uh, <clears throat> overdose deaths are just as uh, almost well, even worse than the COVID. So, and the difference is that the uh, opioids are affecting the younger group of people than COVID, for the most part. And what can we do about it? You know, we keep talking about it, and uh, and we talk about every year. And every year, the opioid overdose death rate increases. And uh, I read in the newspaper once that uh, I guess last week that they got enough fentanyl that they were able to uh, find and get out of this system that could kill everybody in the United States. So that uh, uh, where's the fentanyl coming from and uh, what are we doing to try to stop it from uh, being used so plentifully across the country? Any, um, any idea? Does, any, does anyone other than, Dr. other than Dr. Callender have an idea as to what country has the longest life expectancy? Sweden. Anybody else? Yeah. It's Japan. Right. 84. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, it's funny that you should mention that because just looking at life expectancy by race, uh, United States, Asians have the highest life expectancy of 86.3, followed by Hispanics of 82. Um, whites are at 78.6. Blacks are at 75. But, you know, with Japan having the highest life expectancy in the world and Asians, uh, outliving the rest of us by far in the United States, 86.3. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. And, and I, I think the, uh, it's amazing that Asians, in spite of coming to the United States, still, uh, and our diet, uh, still, uh, are, by far the highest life expectancy. Well, okay, this is anecdotal, but to me, it seems that uh, Asians are more likely to stick to their diet than adapt than adopt this the standard American diet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true. There's so many factors involved. The Asians don't have the, uh, at least in Japan, you don't have the fast foods until. McDonald's has moved into Japan. <laughs> well, I know what I went over there, they did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I went over there with uh, President Carter and uh, the Japanese uh, were very small. Uh, it's very rare that you see a, an obese uh, Japanese person. Um, so their diet plays a key role in their uh, long longevity, I do believe. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's true. I agree. Well, uh, Dr. Callender, you ask also what could we do? Um, I did at one of our family meetings. In fact, the last one I 
asked our grandchildren, what do they know about the fentanyl? And then there was one grandchild who was a walking encyclopedia. But then he told, they told us about, um, I brought up about like Barbara Bush or one of them that said, just say, no, does that work? And all the grandchildren say, no, that doesn't work. And then they elaborated, it's a curiosity. And they know it's in candy and other drugs. And um, But even one of the young ones were talking about how they had um, friends who um, had passed and was in their schools that had um, got had died from a drug overdose of fentanyl. So, and we were sort of surprised that it happened in middle school and et cetera, not only the high schools. And, you know, we read about it in the newspaper, but for the children to actually know of other children that are around them. So it is really more than what we think. And it's time that, you know, you just bring it out in the open and discuss it and what will work. And um, for the parents, you know, knowledge and information and talk about it and bring it out into the open is, I think is one way of helping the younger generation and even the older generation to understand how this is an epidemic. Yeah, well, I, don't, I, don't the, uh, I don't think the kids get uh, fentanyl by choice. They don't know that they're buying fentanyl. Yeah, it's usually that's what mixed they with said. Percocet and other drugs. So it's it's in the it's in the drug, but the kids are not aware of it, and that's why yeah. they get killed. They're even adding fentanyl to marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and we brought that up too. Yeah. 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 So it's just like home cooking. It's a whole lot better to grow your own than buy it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the other thing is that uh, you brought up a good point about the middle schools, but uh, it probably needs to go to the elementary schools as well. Yeah. But a lot of times it's the packaging of, of them. You know, I, I saw an article one day this week about how they make it the packages look like the regular candies and stuff and you know yeah. kids yeah. like you said they think they're getting candy maybe and they end up with no they don't think they're getting candy mm -hmm. well it's a, a crisis that uh, we have done as poorly with this as we've done with COVID except worse and it seems like the more we talk about it, the worse it gets. So, so we really need a radical uh, step to be taken to address this. Any other ideas or thoughts? Well, it's, it, it certainly has a, a spiraled from uh, what we thought was a problem five years ago to what it now has become. Uh, today. There's another article that talks about how much water you should drink. And, uh, and I think pretty much as the article last uh, week indicates that uh, one size does not necessarily fit all, but uh, uh, Drinking water and fluids becomes uh, critical. How much you drink, uh, still, uh, we still uh, 
think around uh, about two liters a day. But as somebody has mentioned, uh, I think uh, Kevin has mentioned when he, he notices his urine is dark, you know that you are dehydrated. Unless it's related to- We should remind you that you can overdrink. You can drink too much water, uh, but uh, uh, most people drink too little water. Go on, Dr. Ivy. I was saying when you speak of dark urine, it could be related to liver disease too, other things. So, uh, but when it gets uh, concentrated to the point that you can really smell it, then it, it's, it changes color from the almost clear to just a little uh, yellow that's uh, normal. Then when it gets real dark, orange, I guess it would be time for you to increase your fluid intake, your water intake. Because they used to say that eight, eight glasses a day would be um, ideal. But that was not considering the fact that you eat food which has water in it. And some people can uh, become over uh, in, water intoxicated. So yeah. that's something to be aware of. Okay, this is an another article on working out on an empty stomach, uh, which suggests that before you go out on your walk or your run, that you, uh, even if you don't have a full-fledged breakfast, but you have something for your body to work on while you're exercising. And most of the research uh, demonstrates that uh, while you're at exercising, your body's breaking down uh, uh, proteins and carbohydrates and everything else so that you need, it's better to have something uh, for the body to work on as you exercise. And I think that that's the meat of this article that uh, suggesting that you take something before you go out on your, your morning uh, walk or run or whatever. John Buchanan, you 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 uh, you get something to eat before you go out on your your uh, your exercises. I do uh, always, even if it's uh, a pear or, or a banana, uh, I'll eat something. Usually, I either have a bowl of cereal or some fruit. Okay. And I I, I don't really walk anymore. I um, I swim now. Okay, all right. That's that's how I got to be overweight. <laughs> Instead of remember the uh, gastrocnemius muscles that Doctor uh, Ivy told us about is the the heart below the belly button that keeps us going. Uh, so that walking is an exercise that is meritorious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So we still remember your talk, Dr. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> <clears throat>
Okay, I think that's the essence of that one. Is uh, before you go, go to work out, uh, get something in your stomach. It says eat something, but it doesn't say eat healthy. So what about potato chips or something like that? <laughs> well, we 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 always want you to eat healthy. <laughs> now I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> always work. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, salt, you don't want a whole lot of salt, and particularly in black right. folk. Yes, so you don't, potato chips not a good uh, option. <laughs> <laughs> but they taste so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. that's the tragedy. Yes. Can't see the title of this one, uh, John. Go to the top again, I can't see the top. Oh yeah, this is a good article that talks about uh, complete proteins and the so-called incomplete proteins. Uh, they talk about a variety of foods, most of which, uh, and this is one of the few articles that talks about animal proteins uh, because the, most articles don't talk about animal proteins. And this article talks about Animal, animal proteins as a, as a source of complete proteins. Not indicating that you can't do well with incomplete proteins, but suggesting that uh, fish and uh, uh, and actually animal, other animal sources give you complete proteins, which uh, uh, help you help your muscles grow. And uh, it also, as as you scroll down. It talks about the complete protein having, having uh, 20 total amino acids and 11 of those in which the body produces on its own and another nine, which it doesn't. And uh, it, it talks about the uh, complete protein foods, which is less. And as you look at that list, um, the complete proteins, you see fish, poultry, eggs, beef, pork, and dairy. Yeah, three are three items that uh, have not uh, fared too well in our discussions. Uh, and then it talks then again about plant-based sources of complete protein. You see the common ones, uh, uh, which you're aware of and some which you may not be aware of that uh, uh, Daryl, any comments about these uh, plant-based sources of complete protein? Uh, yeah. I think that's a bad list from this guy. He didn't do his research. <laughs> what, would you, what, would, what would you add to that list of plant-based? You're talking about vegan sources of complete protein. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll put it like this. Uh, all of the animal sources that he listed, all of those animals, uh, they get their, they get, okay, animals are protein because um, basically they get their uh, protein source. It starts with plants. Any plant that you eat has protein. Uh, any 
protein that you get from an animal product is just secondhand protein. It's not as robust. Uh, as far as like the, the list of uh, complete plant-based protein sources, that's about all plants. Uh, you know, he's got a limited list. He's got the list of uh, so-called uh, like uh, soybean pro products. Uh, they're a little higher in, in protein content. So he, he lists that because uh, tempeh, miso, tofu, that's all soybean base. So he's got uh, he's got a kind of uh, uh, a preference to to some plants uh, as opposed to others. But like when you get down to that paragraph that says everybody's getting at least double the protein that you need anyway, it's not it's not really an issue. Any other thoughts about uh, the uh, protein foods, which which are very important? Whether it's complete or incomplete, we need them because we our muscle uh, need uh, regeneration. Now, I think that uh, uh, all grains and beans, I think, are he emphasizes and. I think that most of the articles uh, talk about the grains and the beans and nuts. Well, I think with uh, with meat protein, I think you also get some fat in there, and that can be that makes the food taste a, a little more tasty, but uh, it also adds unnecessary fat, so your cholesterol tends to rise with the meat protein as opposed to uh, plant protein. So in that sense, you, you're strictly limiting yourself to the protein rather than a combination of the fat and the protein. Right. And it's the fat that started the protein fascination because they found out in the 50s and 60s that uh, animal protein made larger muscles, not necessarily stronger muscles, but the fat content produced larger muscles. Uh, so the thought was that larger was better and stronger, uh, but not necessarily. No, but it adds the fat to the blood vessels of the heart, too, so that's not particularly good. So I think <laughs> with, with muscle building, you, most of them are on steroids, uh, and that sort of adds to it the muscle size. That's what the bodybuilders use. <clears throat> But I think in consideration of what it does to the heart is is more important. Well, this is an article on the Mayo Clinic diet that uh, <clears throat> uh, compares that with the uh, other diets and especially uh, uh, diets for weight loss. Uh, some have thought that uh, the Mayo diet is overrated, but uh, uh, scroll down, you see that it's a diet that uh, has been studied, but uh, and you can see what it, what they're emphasizing are the same 
concept that we've talked about, avoid eating added sugar, fruit, fruits and vegetables, uh, not too much food or diary, no alcohol, <laughs> no eating in front of the television, <laughs> and no eating out. This seems like uh, similar to this article. Uh, but anyway, good, 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 good issues that they bring up. I, I always most of which uh, uh, the uh, American public does not agree with. What'd you say, John Buchanan? I always eat in front of the TV. <laughs> <laughs> always. TV uh, or computer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Phase two, let's go to phase two. Court it's interesting that you point out that uh, something we talk about all the time is uh, physical activity, uh, which we must do as we age in order to stay healthy. Uh, I got a comment about eating in front of the TV, and it's really not a, nothing to do with the TV, but it's uh, great to have dinner with people, with actual people, like family, family meals, uh, because you talk. And when you talk, you slow down. You don't eat as fast. Uh, and so your body is more likely to say, I'm full, before you have gorged yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, it's interesting because uh, Americans really have an idea what hunger is because we eat so much to, we uh, really know what hunger pains are. Because uh, we think you have to eat three times a day and we have places where they eat really at all. So. <coughs> This is an interesting article. I didn't realize that uh, Mark Cuban was such a humanitarian. Uh, he's, he's been involved in using his funds to try to decrease the enormous costs of medication. And we have talked recently about how expensive insulin has become. And so he's been involved recently in trying to work with reducing the cost of insulin, which uh, as you know, uh, has come into the fore because many patients are rationing the insulin because they can't afford to pay for insulin any longer. And so among the uh, drugs that he's working on to reduce the cost uh, is the uh, insulin, which is of course is a life-saving medication. I think he's doing what our our government fails to do, that is allow for competitive bidding for the cost of drugs. <clears throat> That's a big uh, big problem. <clears throat> yeah, I think one of the biggest of the day. As far, big pharma gets bigger and richer, uh, 
this impacts negatively on the rest of us. But it's nice to see somebody who's uh, uh, among the others of, of the very rich who are doing their best to make a difference and share the wealth, which is uh, nice to see. The uh, cost of drugs in the United States is uh, almost embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And so to see efforts like this is very impressive. Uh, you know, you see some of those uh, TV articles in which they show in which some health plans allow you to, to using them can cost reduce the cost of drugs. And Walmart has a, a list of drugs that you can get far cheaper there than any other place. And so if you're really conscious, you can try to find a way to decrease the cost of, of the enormous cost of drugs, which are required to stay to treat diseases. Of course, the best treatment is an ounce of prevention, which is worth a pound of cure. Uh, and the healthy eating and exercise is the key to that. And the exorbitant price of insulin is something that is powerful. There was a time when uh, your insurance would pay completely for the cost of medicine. Uh, but as the people economize on their insurance plans, plans don't cover the cost of some medications. And then you have some medications whose costs are so prohibitive that uh, uh, in order to survive, people can't. Uh, afford to take some medications. Have any of you encountered any of these kind of problems with uh, getting medications? Uh -uh. Or does your insurance cover that? No. Fortunately, we are older. <laughs> Recently, I had, Recently, I had an expensive prescription and, but when I went to the pharmacy, he told me the cost. I said, oh, that's a lot. But he did a good card or a good something in the system and drastically reduced it and gave me the card to use um, for future prescriptions. I can't think of the name. It was good RD or something like that. Good RX. Yeah. 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 And drastically reduced it. I mean, I didn't do anything. The pharmacist did it. Mm -hmm. They have a commercial like that uh, that mm -hmm. points out that uh, there are uh, programs like that. Was that Dr. Scandalbury I saw? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Welcome. Thank you. Just listening. Thanks. When I, when I see those good RX commercials on, on TV while I'm eating my, my dinner, um, you know, I always I always wonder, you know, I, I take a dim view of that. I mean, how come that can happen? Wouldn't everybody use good RX to reduce their their exactly yeah their medical expenses? Their, mm -hmm. you know, I it's it's hard to understand how they can do that. But they do it. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It does seem unfair. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> this this is an interesting article on the supplements that actually boost heart health and. Uh, uh, you 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 read about uh, these supplements that are not new, but uh, old as not as old as Methuselah, but uh, certainly around the antioxidants, the omega fatty acids. Uh, uh, actually, the much of this is found in fish. Of course, vegans who don't eat fish uh, um, may have some comments on that. What? Uh, Darren, what are your thoughts about the omega-3 fatty acids and and the, the fact that a lot of it is found in fish? Uh, I don't know, but since I don't eat fish, I guess it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> right. That's why I asked you. Yeah. I knew it didn't apply to you. Uh, <laughs> well, my heart yeah. health seems to be pretty good, but, you know, check with me in about another 27 years. and. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, omega three is uh, uh, richly supplied outside of fish, as you know. Uh, they have so many omega three products uh, that uh, have been dealing. They've been popularizing for at least the last twenty years, and uh, the reason they they mention is because it's supposed to be. Uh, uh, good for your cholesterol levels and uh, along with folic acid so yeah dr calendar i went to my doctor with all my medications when when i switched doctors i have a, a doctor that's uh got trained at, at howard university and uh, he he told me to stop taking it i was taking fish oil you know two of those uh fish oil pills every day. He said, you know, yeah. he hasn't seen evidence where that really helps. So I don't know. I, I stopped taking it. I haven't uh, fallen off the cliff yet, but we'll see. Well, it's interesting they do research on so many of these things. The antioxidants, of course, well-known to be associated with uh, the telomere lengthening, which is uh, uh, what allegedly gives us longevity. And we always bring up cod liver oil. Remember that? <laughs> Back as a child. Okay. Oh. And let's go to the next one. I'm sorry. Now I have a comment. Uh, because olive oil contains omega-3. 
And so um, if you don't want to eat fish oil, take olive oil. And I'm a, I'm a big uh, olive oil proponent. Okay, me too. Yeah, I like olive oil. I had some this morning. Well, it's an interesting article about sore throats, which now is the commonest manifestation of the COVID. Uh, sore throat and running nose now are the two common uh, evidences of COVID. Early, no longer the uh, uh, alteration in the uh, taste of food and the smell of food right now, so throat. But anyway, this is not talking about the COVID so throat. This is talking about having a sore throat. And when you have a sore throat, I think it's important that you really find out what is causing the sore throat. There are a number of causes of sore throat, uh, including uh, infection. Esophagitis uh, uh, caused by bacteria as well as uh, uh, fungi, uh, also uh, associated with uh, taking products that are harmful, something too hot, uh, can damage the esophagus, the uh, tube that conveys food from the mouth to the stomach. Uh, and uh, uh, but anyway, these are some uh, things that will ease the sore throat. Though you can see uh, things that you wouldn't be surprised to see: warm cereals like oatmeal, grits, or cream of rice, uh, pureed vegetables, yogurt, Jello, humus, scrambled eggs, soup, smoothies ice cream, uh, puddings, popsicles, and tea. All of those are, are things that might soothe it. But don't, don't be deceived. You need to find out what's causing the sore throat. Uh, uh, so that not only, don't be lulled into false sense of security when your throat is sore by just doing these things and forgetting about finding out what causes sore throat in the first place. Uh, because, uh, uh, esophageal, esophagitis, GERDs, esophageal cancer, and other things, uh, as well as infection, can be the, the reason for a sore throat. And so, my plea is that if you have a sore throat, you should uh, uh, make sure that it, it's a benign and not a, a serious uh, disease entity that requires treatment. Then tells me how else can you treat a sore throat? Uh, well, I think uh, I also talked about things to avoid. Uh, you see this list here, and it points out the things that uh, are not good for you. And I think that that's good to keep in mind as well. Everyone yeah, knows not that. on the list for food to avoid dairy. Uh, dairy can, I'm just reading from the internet, dairy can be acidic. So it may irritate your sore throat. Sometimes dairy can thicken mucus. So it's best to avoid cheese and other forms of dairy if your sore throat is due to an upper respiratory infection. But uh, typically, I know we got a lot of singers on the group. And singers will always do better avoiding dairy because it does increase uh, mucus. And so if you want a clear singing tone, it's a great, good idea to avoid dairy. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, I see Betty Blaylock's potato chips on that list. I, I, I saw that, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I, I, there's a lot of ways you can treat this sore throat, but none of them do I recommend because I think it's important to really find out what's causing the sore throat. When should you see whenever you have a bad sore throat? I don't agree with this trying to mask it. Because I've seen so so many patients come in after they uh, let the sore throat go too long. Some of them have turned out to have esophageal cancer. Now, the, now, if you're going to say how long should you wait for a sore throat, I think if, if you have a sore throat that lasts longer than three to five days, you need to see a doctor about it. That's my, my feeling about it. Dementia, the problem that uh, we've recognized, although there's some evidence from some of the articles that it is decreasing over time. Still, it's a problem that uh, affects many above the age of 60. And apparently there are some uh, ultra-processed foods that contribute to them. You see some of the things that you may like, uh, Hot dogs, sausages, burgers, French fries, sodas, cookies, candy, all the things you might love. <laughs> so, potato chips. Potato chips. <laughs> so the ultra-processed foods, as we've talked about for quite a while now, play a major role in uh, dementia as well. Uh, uh, of course, we talk about them, but there's many other factors that contribute to it as well. Of course, one of the things that uh, almost every article talks about is the mental gymnastics that uh, can be involved with, which promote good mental health. Those guys, those of you who like to do puzzles and uh, involve yourself with chess and those uh, brain testing items are uh, very important. You know, like Sudoku. What did you say? Sudoku, it's a, a numbers game. Oh, 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 that's pretty challenging, especially when you get up to the uh, difficult levels. Okay. Mm. <laughs> the good old American diet, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's that's what you see on every commercial. <laughs> Ultra processed foods. It's just amazing to me that uh, we. Uh, publicize ultra-processed foods more than any 
uh, anything that, that I see on television. It's the ultra processed food. We, we make it so attractive that uh, young people uh, think that it's uh, okay. <clears throat> You're stepping on Charles Barkley's feet now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no wonder that uh, Americans are so overweight because uh, most of our commercials are either alcohol or, uh, or uh, ultra processed foods. How do you avoid ultra processed foods? Well, you don't. Hard. This is exactly what Daryl has been saying. Uh, prepare your food from scratch. <laughs> that's right. Grow your own. own. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No. Suppose you can't cook. <laughs> I guess learn. <laughs> You've cooked all your life, then you, it's time to sit back and relax and not have to cook. That's <laughs> the way you feel, you know. It's the way I feel anyway. Coming, coming up. Well, I feel you, Betty, because it's unfair that most of cooking responsibility is put on women. That'd be, that should be shared where everybody cooks in the family to make it easier for everybody to eat good food. That, that's that's beginning to have happen now, but coming up, bringing up my children, that was, you didn't, women cook, <laughs> so. That's right, uh, yeah. This, this stage of the game, I'm tired of cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the young people today don't cook at all. Yeah, that's true, a lot of them don't. And what well, they do eat is fast food or they go out for dinner, whatever. I, Try to eat healthy, but I, I'm looking at all the diets and what to eat and what not to eat. But when I decided I wanted to lose weight, I just cut back on my portions of whatever I ate. <clears throat> Some of it was not healthy, but I just <laughs> cut back on the portions. And in the last seven or eight months, I have lost, I was 80 something. I've lost about 25 to 30 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That, that will work every time. Uh, mm -hmm. There's so many diets out and every diet is trying to uh, make it so that you can still eat everything you want and lose weight. <clears throat> but the best way for any diet to work is to reduce the intake. Uh, you can you can believe that if you don't eat, you will lose weight. And I, I still eat all, <laughs> all the unhealthy things that I've been eating all my life. <laughs> Ice cream, potato chips. Potato chip diet. Yes. But <laughs> I, I eat less of it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's another thing you can do. Uh, 
some of our, our plates are huge, right? Yes. Switch to a smaller plate, like a medium size <laughs> plate, and uh, you know, just don't put so much on it. And you mm -hmm. you you can you know, sometimes when I'm I'm eating breakfast with, with two eggs and three strips of bacon and two sausages and <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes when I get halfway through that, I feel, you know wow i'm already full so i can actually stop and put half of that away to eat another time you know i've I've started to notice you know more when i get full and i can stop eating at that point yeah well, you know not not too long ago uh there was a practice of wiring the jaws together remember that yeah that was very popular and and people would uh make uh, little slits in the side to slip food in. <laughs> the only problem was that uh, if you really began to choke and the jaw jaws were wired, it's kind of hard to revive you. So they, they stopped using that. <laughs> that was the real extreme to which they went to make you lose weight. And they women used to do that, heavy women, yeah, they would do that regularly. But they would find some way to get around that wiring. <laughs> And well, the other thing is, another thing you do is, is to not eat, not eat after six o'clock. Mm -hmm. mm, yes, yes. You know, it's 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 it's. Uh, I remember I mentioned this once on a radio program. They almost booted me out of the place. But uh, <laughs> not eating after six o'clock is a, a another good way to uh, do it. As you mentioned, portions is a great point, uh, but also for those who who eat at night, stop and try to not eat after six o'clock. That's another way of uh, reducing your intake. Mm -hmm. This is an article on five tips to stave off dementia as you age. And uh, it's, it's interesting as I look at as we see uh, all of these key takeaways, they often start with exercise. As you Exercise see, that's and diet. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then and, and so you not to smoke and not to drink. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, it's amazing how uh, <laughs> how you're brought up makes a big difference on how long you live and what kind of risky behaviors you indulge in as a child uh, kind of in some ways determines whether you age or not. And uh, very true, very true. <clears throat> With all my bad eating, I'm glad I was brought up not to smoke or drink. <laughs> I don't have those problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Physical activity. That's something everybody can do, although the different ways you can be involved in physical activity. Because even if you have arthritis, you can uh, do water exercises. Mm -hmm. But it is one of the ways that uh, seems to work. Diet, of course, is uh, a necessary one. We've talked about that. Uh, always 
those are two things that we always talk about, diet and exercise. Then of course, the treatment of uh, ensuring that your blood pressure is controlled, we talk about that as well, in terms of taking your blood pressure periodically to make sure that it's at least lower than 140 over 90. Although the recommendation is probably closer to 130 over 90. And then time and time again, we reminded about smoking. So, you know, it's amazing how they publicize smoking when we were all very young. Uh, and so many people are dead today because they took up that habit are sick. And then, of course, alcohol. Uh, and then, of course, uh, while they don't talk about heavy drinking, they certainly have enough alcohol commercials, don't they? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no. Alcohol so, and uh, fast food. Right, right, right. And they, they, they really try to rush you to an early grave is what they <laughs> Follow the, if you look on TV and follow the commercials. Well, they all look like they're having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> they don't play the tape all the way through, though. <laughs> yeah, well, here we are. I think all of these are good ways to uh, uh, minimize the likelihood of, of dementia. And uh, of course, they also increase the likelihood of you aging. Uh, and of course, as you age, uh, the likelihood of dementia occurs. You know what they say, the more birthdays you have, the longer you live. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're leading the group right now, Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm way up there. That's right. <clears throat> 91 and, and still counting, huh? 91. Look wow. mm -hmm. <clears throat> well. But I gave her practice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Is that yeah? This is an interesting article about uh, kidney transplantation. Uniting high school classmates two thousand miles apart. Uh, the human condition is. Uh, you know, we talk so much about the the negative, but uh, there's a lot of positive things that happen. And this is a. Good example of uh, of uh, somebody caring. Love, of course, is the greatest gift of all, uh, and uh, this kind of love demonstrated by uh, giving an organ to somebody else is uh, one of the greatest gifts you can have. Christ died and gave His life so we could have eternal life, and now we. And one of the things about being a donor is that it, it uh, helps you much spiritually and as well as physically uh, and mentally because you you you, be, you you perform a heroic deed, but you also have uh, demonstrated love and action. And uh, this is an interesting how uh, how these uh, folks from long distance. Found each other again and uh, gave a gift of life. 
in the gift of life, liver, gift of life. We've got examples. Uh, John and Tatum has both, kidney and liver. So, so he uh, uh, typifies uh, the wonderful things that can happen as a consequence of this uh, gift of life, uh, whether it's organ or tissue, as a matter of fact. And in this case, uh, we're talking about a kidney transplant. Uh, What makes a person do it? Well, it's interesting that they, these people knew each other, but they were also category of donors called altruistic donors who don't know any, don't don't know anybody else. They just want to give an organ to help somebody, and they don't even know them. So, uh, and it's, it's interesting how some people actually recognize that you have two kidneys, but you only need one, and so they think that that other kidney is, was given to them to help somebody have a second chance at life. And uh, this then is the category of living donors, whether it's uh, altruistic or uh, is giving it to someone you know and love. And uh, going through tests to make sure that you're healthy is something that is done also to make sure that you're a good match and also that the donor can withstand the rigors of uh, surgery and also that they can live a normal life after they've uh, given this wonderful gift. And so yeah. this is something that... Uh, Dr. Chandler, I've always had a, a, a question about that. Is there any, uh, I don't know, research or documentation about the kidney donors, uh, how their lives have been affected? Uh, many, 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 by, by much literature process. demonstrating that they are able to have children, bear children, and live long lives thereafter. Um, there is also uh, evidence that uh, uh, some kidney donors uh, can lose that one kidney and become recipients themselves. They will just skip the queue and get to the top of the list. But uh, mm. but for the most part, uh, donation is uh, done. And there's many articles that have looked at <clears throat> followed up kidney donation for as long as 30 to 40 years. And uh, the uh, impact on health is, is considered negligible. But this is an area of great concern because we have uh, actually, Motev has adopted living donation as one of its uh, themes for the future because uh, uh, the African American community has uh, become such a, a a uh, poor uh, utilizer of living donation. Uh, there was a time when uh, African Americans were, were, were among the uh, those who were doing living donation. Right now, we're kind of at the bottom of the list. We've increased deceased donation, but in terms of living donation, we have uh, 
gone backwards a lot over the last 10 years. But there is, there is data that uh, uh, kidney donation can be done with a negligible impact upon the health of the donor. Any other comments or thoughts about this? Uh, yes. With uh, respect to these uh, organ donors, living organ donors, we don't hear too much about uh, uh, like eye donor, you know, living eye donors. You know, we, well, have, we don't have any living eye donors. All of the, all of the corneal transplants are from people who've died. Okay. So the, the living organs that you can give and uh, the living tissues, of course, blood as, as we have uh, John Buchanan, who's given a hundred donations already. Of course, blood transfusions, uh, of course, uh, uh, plasma donations. And then of course you can give the part of the liver, you can give the kidney, a kidney, and you can give part of the lung. Uh, and you can give the intest part of the intestines. Uh, 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 whereas the other organs, uh, for example, the heart uh, is deceased, cornea is deceased. Uh, uh, and uh, most of the other don tissue donors are deceased. But uh, the live donors can be, uh, as we mentioned, Blood, uh, and, uh, blood and kidneys and liver. Doc, I just gave my 104th donation uh, last week. Oh, congratulations. Mm. Remarkable story. Any other comments or thoughts about uh, living donation? I think everybody can remember that our son gave his um, kidney to my husband as a living donation. Mark, yes, yeah, Mark. Mark is Mark is quite a hero. Uh, he 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 would never talk about it, and all the times that we've had him on, I had to drag him out to talk about the wonderful act of donation that he did giving his father. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the things that living donors talk about is the the uh, mental and spiritual benefit of being a donor. But you have to be healthy enough to be a donor. <clears throat> this is a, a shocking article that you actually have a people who, who are unvaccinated who got measles. And this is the new disease that uh, uh, can run rampant if you're not vaccinate, vaccinated. But uh, they did have some children who were uh, vaccinated. And this is a fearful disease because it's very, very contagious. Uh, And to see that it's affected people in the United States is shocking because we thought we 
eliminated the measles from the face of the earth. And there's so many people who are anti-vaccination of any kind. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's amazing how many people remain that way. Well, I don't know, you know, when we think about it, how can you convince people to be vaccinated if they have had bad experiences? I, I thought that was a requirement for going to public school. You have to have your measles and mumps. Un unless you have a religious reason not to. You know, some may have religious reasons for not doing so. Some may even have medical reasons. But most schools require vaccination, as you pointed out. It's amazing that uh, EMTs are so important. Emergency medical technicians uh, who are in the ambulances and uh, uh, play a very important role in being the first responders when people are sick. It's an important uh, role. Uh, and many of them have quit because of reason I'm not sure, of course, uh, the salaries are not huge. And one way of uh, increasing it is increasing the salaries. Because uh, can you imagine not having EMTs on the ambulance? Because they're the first responders and they uh, often put in the, in the tracheal tubes and do all of those things that are necessary to resuscitate people who would otherwise die. And so this is another area that uh, we're having a shortage of doctors, we have a shortage of EMTs. And so the, this then allows for physician assistants and other professions to grow. So the bottom line is they're gonna to have to increase the salaries and we're gonna to have to uh, try ways to increase because EMTs are, an invaluable resource. Most of the uh, many, I'd say a significant number of the medical students that I, I uh, interview for medical school have been EMTs at one point or another. But many of them have just got into it because they wanted to learn, have the experience of being an EMT. They didn't do it for the money. Any other items? Yeah.